0: Good morning. Welcome to Battleground Community Church. I invite you to take your Bibles. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 as we finish up chapter 3 today. We're going to be reading verses 21 to 31 in just a minute, but we're going to be uh, zooming in, as it were, from verses 27 to 31. Uh, We looked at the other part last week. Uh, Just as you find your place, uh, this this is our second week in our in our new worship center, so just to orient you, uh, we do celebrate communion here and and every week, and we don't pass the baskets and all of that, and we have that right in the middle of the worship center. And so, during our response time at the end, we we invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to to pray and and get yourself in a position to worship God. The the Bible tells us even warns us to not come to the tables in an unworthy manner and so we leave you time to get ready for that and then come bring your offerings and worship the Lord through communion at the end uh, and also if if you have to use the restroom do it before the service but if it happens then go out the back right don't go out the doors this if you go out here you you put our children's security at an issue and you distract your pastor. So just, just trying to orient us and train us a little bit toward the toward the new space. And so all that being said, let us give ourselves. We have been talking about the problem. And boy, has Paul talked about the problem. From chapters 1 to chapters 3, we have discussed what our problem is as a man. What we have been looking at, whether we realize it or not, Is the doctrine of man what the problem is and why we need a remedy, why we need a solution. And now, praise the Lord, we have turned the corner in verse 21 and let us stand and let us begin to think again about this wonderful, this central section in Paul's letter to the church of Rome. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, says, but now... "...through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting... It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. So Lord, we come to you with this just wonderfully deep, majestic text, asking for your help uh, that we can at least see a few of these wonderful, beautiful truths and evidences that are here today for us. All that those who hear my voice might be saved. We can't do that, God. But this we do today. We proclaim the only means you've given us by which they can be saved and by which we can be free by which we can be healed from the inside out. And so, Lord, we lay the truth of your word in front of us today along right beside of our need because this is the remedy and we have received it by faith. Speak to your people today and use me in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. So Paul really has turned a curve here from the the bad side of the good news to the good side of the good news. From problem to remedy. The foundational truth that Paul has hit on and that you you heard it over and over and over in this section, and you will keep hearing it, is that we are saved by faith, not by works. It's foundational for everything that you believe and everything that flows out of your life after you put your trust in Jesus Christ, everything else you do in this life is by faith. And he's not always going to tell you where he's going to take you or where he's going to call you or what he's going to do, but whatever it is, we do it by faith. I love Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, Faith is believing that Christ is what he has said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then to expect this of him. It changes everything in our life. And I want you to just, by way of introduction, and your notes has this here, how do we know someone has experienced saving faith? We're going to look at some evidences today, but I want you to give something else, another These just four elements here that that are present, at least four elements that are present when someone believes. Their first must be the knowledge of truth. One of the things that's important for us to invest in our kids is because knowledge about God precedes knowledge of God. Knowledge about God. Who is Jesus and what did he do? What is the Old Testament for? And what about those 10 commandments? And what happened to the Jews in Egypt? And all of that is, is critically important to lay the foundation so that people might know from our children to our old, old who is this Jesus? Who is this God that created the world? Knowledge about God. intimate knowledge of God. You just didn't find your now wife and marry her the next day. We have to know her, about her, before we know her. How does this happen? It comes by the second element, which is the proclamation of God's word. Romans 10, 14 says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Now will they believe in him and whom they've never heard? And how will they hear him? without a preacher, without someone declaring it to them. So the knowledge of truth comes through the teaching and the preaching of God's word. But the third element and the essential element in saving faith is the moving of the heart. Now we can call this different things. Regeneration, being born again. It is when the old nature goes and the new nature comes. That's what was promised. This is not simply a, a new covenant thing. This was promised in Ezekiel and promised in Jeremiah and he even spoke to it, remember, in John 3 when he spoke to Nicodemus and said, you should know this. This was always the plan. The scary reality up to this point is that you can have information and content in even an emotional experience and still go to hell because this is essential. The moving of the heart, the changing of the nature is wrought, it is brought by the power of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the word. And what we are looking at today, specifically, is the fourth element. And The reason I wanted to give you this is it is the committing of one's life. This is the part, this is essential to saving faith. Some people call it different things, trusting, committing, devoting. You can have information in your head. You can even go to a church that, that can really stir your emotions and make you feel part of a team and still go out with no commitment to Jesus Christ in your everyday life and no power over sin, It was when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, that he committed himself to Christ. It's essential. So I just wanted us to put that down and you just see that. Because from saving faith, you'll, our lives begin to give evidence. And he's not done with this. He's going to come back and give us more evidences in the future in Romans. But I just wanted you to see four today. And so let's back up a little bit to last week just to make sure that we were paying attention. I just wanted to point out this first evidence. This first evidence, we've even been singing about it this morning, should be a grateful faith. So let's let's read again. Look at verse 23, Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-removing substitute by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And we've been singing about that already, ready. What I want you to see is the centrality of the cross in Christianity orients us toward gratefulness. That's so why we're here today. So I will go to the tables in a few minutes. It orients us week by week, day by day, moment by moment, to remember the cross. The cross was is what put God on display in an unexpected way. That's what he's teaching us last week. That on the cross, he conquered our problem by putting on display two things: his justice and his mercy. And he did not compromise or water down either one of those things. He, gave, he, he answered the question, what is man's problem and what must be done about it? And it happened at the cross. And until you feel that, until you feel the burden of the cross, until you feel the necessity of the cross, until you feel the horror of the cross and the anguish of the cross, you will never see the glory of the cross. And that will affect the evidence that will not be in your life is you will always seem to be a half-empty glass kind of person. And if that is you today, I would beckon you to go to the cross because you cannot stay at the cross very long and not come away broken and grateful for what Christ has done for us. Even, brothers and sisters, and many of us have had what what some call the dark night of our soul. And it is the cross that keeps us oriented, even in those moments and even in those seasons. Galatians 6, Galatians 6 ties in gratefulness to our next evidence. Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me, Paul's writing again, this is a letter to the church. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which he has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So a grateful faith is a humble faith. That's what he's saying in verse 27 now in Romans 3. He asks this question, Then, if it is true that we are saved by faith and not by works, what about our pride? What do we have to boast in? He said it's excluded. It shouldn't exist. We must kill it. By what kind of law? he says by the law of works? Now this is important. I want you to see this today in the text, not my opinion, but what the what it says this is going to be important to tie this together at the end. No but by the law of what faith the law of faith remember that sort of underlining faith is a gift of god's grace we're calling this a law this is the principle another way of saying it, it is the rule of faith the principle of faith it is that it is a gift it shouldn't be up for debate God gives it to us, not just salvation. He gives you the faith by which you must use to believe. If someone comes up to you and gives you a gift and you pull your wallet out and you, and you hand them $20, what have you just done? Number one, you have insulted the giver. Who means for you to have that as a gift, right? Some of you need to realize that when someone takes you out to eat. They're trying to bless you, and you need to receive it because it's insulting when someone means to give you grace, and then you try to pay for it. Not only that, if if it is received, it ceases to be a gift. It's just something that you paid for. Oh, you might have got a good, good deal on it, you know, take you to the steakhouse and and you hand somebody $10 for your part. You might have got a super cheap meal, but you still paid for it. And it ceases to be grace. The law of faith is, is specifies it is a gift so all the glory may go to the giver. And that's the point. The Mosaic law says you have nothing good in you and I'll prove it. And that's what we've been talking about for the last three chapters. And that's what the Bible, the the largest part of your Bible that you must know to understand saving faith has proven we have failed morally and ethically and motivationally over and over in our life. The law of faith says grace and salvation is a gift. And if that's not enough, the Holy Spirit is given to us to constantly remind us of this. I turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Another group of people in the Bible that had problems with their pride. The church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 7. I love this verse, by the way. you've hung around me long enough. You've heard it. What do you have that you did not receive? Just a really good question, isn't it? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's that's one of those clear passages in the Bible that that who we are in Christ and who he has stamped into our life, and even what he has called us to do with our lives is all flows out of the gift that he has given us to put our faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, if you got First Corinthians, flip back a couple of pages to chapter one. And this gives us all hope. First Corinthians one, verse twenty-eight. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in G- Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." If we have anything to brag about, it is like a grandparent bragging about his grandchildren. We brag, we brag on Christ, of who He is, because whatever we are and whatever God uses us now or into the future. It is simply a gift of His grace from the simple to the profound in our life. In other words, destroying pride is built into God's plan of salvation. Destroying your pride, destroying my pride, despri- despairing, de- destroying our pride. Because why? Because pride is toxic in your life. It is toxic in our culture. And, and I simply don't know any better way to illustrate it than to recommend a book for you. And the book is written by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And if, if you've tried to read it before and didn't get all the way through, just just read his chapter on pride and then put it down for six months. But you, he had, brings such enlightenment to this. Listen to what he says. There is one vice by, of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who, who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about. Is pride. Did you get his question? His sort of quandary? Why, why are we so unaware of it in ourselves, but keenly aware of it in other people? He said only Christian people can put the finger, the problem of pride, and point it into their own life. There is an essential nature to this pride. And first, we just got to understand, it is essentially blinding. We can even use that illustration that the Bible uses that we are blind, deaf, and dead because that's sort of what pride does. Pride will just get you to where you don't even look at other people. You look beyond them. You look over them. You look down on them. You don't listen to them because what they're saying is stupid in comparison to what you have to say, your ideas are the best ideas, and their ideas are always the terrible ideas, or you had already thought of that idea already. Humility, on the other hand, looks at people, it listens first to God and then to them. Psalms 10:4: the wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. Lewis adds another one. He said, pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only of having more of it than the next man. He goes on to say, the Christian is right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness amongst drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. That is why God builds into salvation by faith the destruction of your pride. Because if you are saved today, you have no room to brag about it. It is completely of God. And if your theology that you have been taught from birth doesn't teach you that, there's something wrong with it at a foundational level. Because there is no more dangerous pride, no more toxic pride than religious pride. Speak to my own people here right now. I see when I look on social media, people using the faith to criticize others with small, minor, secondary differences. They sit around with these vlogs with a with a table that's got a liquor bottle on it, smoking their cigars, talking about theology and and dishing everybody else that doesn't think exactly like they do. It is destructive. And you tell me why they set that up the way they set that up. It's nothing but pride. It is Luke 18 that would beat his chest in prayer. And what did he think he deserved? The prideful man not only thinks he deserves something from other people, he thinks he deserves something from God. Pride demands something from people because they deserve it. It demands something from God because they are worth it. And we are, our country and even in the churches are oftentimes eaten up with this religious pride. Saving faith is humble and grateful for the gift of faith in Christ. And saving faith, listen, is a unified faith. That's his next point, verses 28 to 30. He says, Then what becomes of our boasting is excluded. What kind of law? By the law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Listen, or or is God the God of the Jews only? He is not the God of, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the, circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's what he's getting at, the question that he would ask. Do you really believe that there are more than one way to God? And we would all say, of course not. I'm sitting there going, yeah, but your attitudes and your actions toward those people seem to act as if there is because we would just assume not have them in our worship service because they bring in their cultures or their smells or their issues or whatever they might be. And, and so the question is, is God the God of the Americans? Is, he, is God simply the God of the blue collar? Is God the God of the white collar? Is God simply the God of the poor man, the downtrodden man? Or is he not the God of the elite? This is the question. And listen, every Jewish person in the room knew the answer to that because the Shema was what they built their life around. Deuteronomy 6 4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Around them were the Gentiles coming into their churches, changing the culture. Music wasn't the same as what it used to be, preacher, because them people are coming into our church. And they, fought, they fought it in the, new, the early church, just like we fight it now. And he says, well, what about the Gentiles? Is God their God? Is God their God too? It's true that there was a saying in Athens that there were more gods than people. And that all kinds of immorality was attached to this religious system. And it was even worse in Rome, where these believers would have been and those folks were getting saved and they were coming into their church and becoming part of their body. He says, Is God their God? So will they worship all those other gods? That's not the question. Is there one God? Yes. Then who's who's their God? Yahweh is. You see, it's a logical argument. If God is the God of all people, and listen, here's the second argument. He's already made it. If we are all sinners, if we all have the same need, if Romans 3.23 is right, and we've all fallen short, then we all have the same problem And if there is one Savior, should the Gentiles, or should put in the Gentiles anybody else that you would rather not be close to today and say, should they look somewhere else for salvation? Paul said a resounding, no. The pimps and the prostitutes, the marginalized or the elite all have the same problem. They all have the same God and the law of faith stands as an immovable thing that they must repent and put their faith in Christ. Listen, there is another if here that he will make his point through, but I want to make it now so we understand the difference because we're Americans and we're individuals and we're hung up on that oftentimes when we talk about I am saved by my faith. No, brothers and sisters, you are saved by the faith. The faith. There is a distinction in the Bible in Paul's letter between our faith that we place and the faith. The faith is the gospel. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ and his sufficient work for the salvation of all who believe. And it does not change and it does not move. And it is what we, we're not saved by our faith. We are saved by the work of Jesus Christ in whom we believe. There is the faith. Listen to a couple verses. Jude 3. Beloved, though I was eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary right to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith was delivered and it does not change. 1 Timothy 6 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Didn't say fight the good fight of your faith. It is the faith it has been given to us. We have received it by faith on which we stand. Paul gets down to the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is our faith and there is the faith. And here's a question a preacher asked me one time or asked while he was preaching a message and he said, do you have faith in your faith? It's a good question. Or do you have faith in the faith? Because it is that faith that saves. It is that faith that is for all people, not just for some people. And listen, you might disagree with me and it's okay. But if we have this idea that God has these two separate groups of people, ones who have different things. Listen, the Bible is teaching us that everything comes down into the law of faith, into the gospel, and that all people must receive this gospel and when they are they are brought into the church. Then that's the then there's one body. If there is one God, if we all have the same problem, and if there's only one salvation, and there is only one rule of faith, then there is one body. Ephesians 2:11 says therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by which is called circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by accomplishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And he has created in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off. And what did he preach to those that were near? The same thing peace. there is one gospel there is one problem and it is sin and there is one salvation that comes through Christ and listen when you put your faith in Jesus Christ there is only one body it's not two. That's the biblical truth there's no precedent for it anywhere else. Christianity is not a religion of any one ethnic group. it is not a religion of one period of time. it transcends them all because the cross stands before them all in the center of it all that must be received by faith to the one who is saved. Ephesians 4, 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Saving faith gives off evidences in our life. They look like gratefulness. It looks like humility. It looks like a unification, our unity in faith with other brothers and sisters. It also looks like an obedient faith. Verse 31 Do we then overthrow this law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, what does these two aspects mean? Do we overthrow the law? Do we uphold the law? What he's saying here very clearly: the faith does not destroy the law. Now, what is the law? I don't have time to get into this today. It's one of the reasons why a good study of the Old Testament and the connection between the law and the gospel is essential in our Christian journey. The law sometimes could be God himself. The law law sometimes can be the Mosaic law. The law can sometimes be the whole of God's word when it is discussed in Scripture. But to overthrow it means to set it aside It means to abolish it. Or as one preacher said down in Atlanta, we just need to unhitch it. It is through God's word that the faith that we believe is defined. We don't even know what faith is. We're fixing to go to chapter four and what's he going to do? Go back to the Old Testament to understand it, to illustrate it we can't understand it unless we understand the covenants. The covenants were laid out in the Old Testament. God's Word brings faith. The Old Testament foretold it, and the New Testament fulfilled it. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You were saved today because you heard God's word. God's word sustains our faith. It provides us, it protects us, it preserves us, it corrects us, it affirms us, it orients us. It provides peace for us in times of despair. It brings joy. Yes, happiness comes through the Word of God. If you are not joyful and you are not content and you are not happy, let me ask you something. How much time are you spending in the book? Because I promise you, when you close the book those things will begin to fade away. We are people of the book. The faith does not mean that we close up our Bibles because we've already done that. Faith orients us to a humble, grateful, devoted obedience. He says this, no, we uphold the law so that's tricky. What does he mean by that? All us, all the all the legalistic people in the room are going, oh no! Is it, I, I, but I got my list. What you look, what are you listening for right now? All the legalistic people, there's so many to add to the list today to uphold the law. All the other people on the other side are sitting there going, oh What are you kidding me? What does that mean? I thought I didn't have to worry about the law anymore. I think we can understand this through two things that have been made clear to us in Scripture. We uphold the law by upholding two laws as Christians the law of faith and the law of Christ. The law of faith and the law of Christ. Because Christ fulfilled the law, He fulfilled the covenants. Everything in your Bible, in redemptive history, in time and space, was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we uphold the law? We magnify Jesus Christ because he is the one that fulfilled the old covenant. He is the new covenant. We live radically Christ-centered lives, denying ourselves, taking up the crosses that our Lord gives us and following him faithful to the end. That's how we uphold the law. We devote ourselves to Christ, committing him him fully, serving his church, reorienting our lives around him. We rest not on a particular day of the week, but we rest in Jesus Christ every day of the week. Whenever we feel it or when we don't, when we think we need it and we think we got it all together, we rest in Christ. We have nothing but him. It is he who has saved us, Is he who keeps us, Is he who has promised to fulfill his word in us. We rest in him. And and in in that, in that resting is when we experience joy and happiness and peace and fulfillment and purpose. There is the law of Christ that everything else is fulfilled in. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Listen to what he says. Bear one one another's burdens and so fulfill the what? The law of Christ. The law of Christ determines how we labor with each other how we love each other, how we carry what each other's going through. 1 John 4, 21 said, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's no place in the body of Christ for unforgiveness. Unforgiveness should scare you to death as a Christian because it's not evidence of saving faith because we hang around the cross so long. We just can't hang on to it. Look what Christ did for me. It also affects how we see the world. 1 Corinthians 9, 20. Paul's so clear here about the law of Christ. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being under the law myself that I might win those under the law to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law. So to what he says. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win those outside the law. Give yourself to know the law of Christ. So here's the question today. And I know we're out of time is my life bearing this kind of witness? Colossians 3.15, I don't know of a better word. Has I loved it because it had the word peace and thankful all through it. I'm going to read in the New Living Translation this morning because it was just so clear. It says, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all wisdom He gives that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Inward peace. That Christ gives brings outward gratefulness, outward worship, love for the body of Christ. My final question is just simply this, are you celebrating the cross with your life? If not, I would, I would challenge you. The cross bids you today to come, whether you are saved or not. He bids you to come back to the cross to stand at the foot of the cross and to remember this one who laid down his rights to take a lesser nature, to do what you couldn't do, to stand in your place and take your debt, to give you righteousness and to make you a family and to prove all of those promises are true by raising from the dead. It is he that we think about when we come to the cross. And so let's give ourselves to this, brothers and sisters, because there is a communion at the cross. That's why we celebrate communion every week. There's a communion that we celebrate. There's a Thanksgiving offering that we celebrate when we come to the tables, remembering not only our sin, but remembering that God saved me and brought me into a family, the people that you sit beside you will be worshiping with them forever. All those that are born again, what, no matter what they look like, no matter what, what their W2 is or what their skin color is or what their culture is, if they have faith in Christ, they are brothers and sisters and we come to this table with them to remember we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And one Christ that is over all and in all and through all. He is our Father. And this we remember and this we celebrate now. As we stand up and sing to our God and our Father who gave us our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. That we can roll around in this gospel week by week. Day by day, moment by moment. And Lord, now we just want to magnify your name. You are our Father. And though you are in heaven, you have given us the Holy Spirit, that dwells with us and is in us. You as you have given us and beautiful ordinances of the church that we can do weekly to remember the cross. Lord, so now we come to celebrate through our mouths and through our giving and through our communion with you and with your Son, with your people. May we not take this in an unworthy way, God but call on you at the cross to forgive us and come to the table in the fullness of joy by faith. And so, Lord, receive our worship today and bring joy and happiness to the souls of all who hear and all who are present. In Jesus' name, amen.